Hi, I'm Dave Merlino. I'm Dustin Sweet, and this is the Know Their Story podcast. We talk to veterans about their time in service, returning home from war, and transitioning out of the military. Hopefully along the way, we'll inspire you to do the same with a veteran in your life. Because sometimes all it takes to make the world a better place is sitting down with a friend to know their story. Okay, welcome back to episode 17 of the Know Their Story podcast. Usually I would banter with Dustin right now, but he is having a hard time telling time today. So he will jump on when he jumps on and when I decide to admit him to the conversation. Uh, But joining us today, we are going back to our roots, all the way back to our roots, not only to the Vietnam War, but to Apache Troop the troop nearest and dearest to our heart, who we started this documentary with so many years ago, um, which we couldn't imagine doing anything else. And that has led to this podcast. Uh, But serving in Vietnam, 1969 to 70, as a torque torque gunner. I'll say the torque for the people in the military, for the people not in the military, they use a door gunner on a loach (laughs) helicopter, the scout observers a notoriously risky assignment. Um, Specialist four in Vietnam, uh, left the military as a sergeant. Please welcome Mr. Mike Lentino. Thank you for joining us today, Mike. Well, welcome, uh, Dave. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and um, it seems weird that it's been so long, but we met um, in Kansas City at the Apache Troop Reunion that was done every two years. It was going to bump up to every year, but uh, something called COVID has kind of ruined this one we were going to do. But Mike has an advantage in that he has actually seen the Apache Blues movie. He was part of our very first test screening audience, which we did for Apache Troop. And I have to tell you, as an aside, Mike, as the most nerve-wracking thing we've ever done as filmmakers. Oh, my bad is to take not only a finished movie a bunch of us cranky old guys yeah right sign me up not only a finished movie that no one has ever seen but a movie about the guys in the audience right (laughs) we stood at the back door and i was like all right we're either gonna get a clap or we're gonna hit the road like right now (laughs) so but we feel it was well received and that was turned into most nerve-wracking thing we've done to the most gratifying thing that we've done yeah, and thank you thank you for making it that movie that was uh, excellent to watch and certainly jolts up a bunch of memories from the Wayback machine yeah it's we did a test screening later here in Seattle and one of the questions we got from the audience when talking about the downed helicopters which we can get into more later on an official side but we have a segment for the audience about downed helicopters and I admit it's pretty intense and we had a lot of discussions about how intense we wanted to make it and we just decided we're going to make it intense um one of the questions was did we have to make it so graphic and intense and so dustin and i said yes we did because it's their story this is what they went through and we would be doing a disservice to you guys if we didn't do that um so deal and the afterwards this husband came up and was like i'm sorry about that <laughs> so it was pretty funny um but i'm gonna take dustin's first question that he normally does and ask you 
how you decided to join the U.S. military, the Army in this case. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, uh, in a fairly moderately rough neighborhood. Uh, there was certainly gang activity around there. Drugs were starting to hit the streets. Um, at 15, 16 years old, my friends that I grew up with, you know, there were guys who should have been the starting shortstop for the New York Yankees for 20 years. Uh, and they're sitting behind a building in the shade, pulling a rubber tube, going, hey, Mikey, you got to try this. And it's like, no, man, this, you know, the, 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 the world of gangs, the world of drugs has a fork in the road. One way goes to the cemetery and the other way goes to prison. And I had no interest in either one. My family life personally wasn't exactly the most stable. Uh, my parent, I graduated, well, I turned 17 in April, graduated in June, and I was in basic training doing push-ups in July. Uh, it was pretty much bang, bang, bang. It was a joint family decision between my mother, my sister, and I, and it was designed to protect my mother, which any good son should be more than willing to do, and I was, uh, regardless of the risks. And went in the military. Uh, to get off the streets, number one, which were going to take me down. They take everybody down sooner or later and put myself in a better position. I, I knew I should be going to college. I wanted to go to a college and live in a dorm. My parents couldn't afford that stuff. And the thought of living at home for four more years to go to college was absolutely out of the question. And uh, there's a lot of ex-military in my family. It was in, in those days considered, still considered an honorable thing to do. Uh, it isn't quite the way things turned out initially, but you know that's the past and that's the reality. Um, basic training, went to helicopter school, uh, turned 18, and Uncle Sam's idea of a birthday card was orders to Vietnam. So hop on the big old jet airplane, fly to Oakland, California, and then you jump the pond and land in Vietnam. It was that fast. It literally just zipped by. And I was initially trained as a helicopter mechanic on UEs, of all things, uh, Charlie and Delta models. And after three, four weeks, maybe five weeks of working in maintenance, I patched one too many bullet holes. I washed out too much blood and something inside of me changed. And I walked across the field to our top sergeant. Have you met John Williamson, our top? I, I know him by reputation, but I've not yeah. met him. Awesome, man. Awesome, man. He spent a half an hour trying to talk me out of joining scouts and I wasn't having it. And then I started flying scouts. You start as an observer. Um, it's not for the faint of heart and it's not for everybody. Um, some guys never get past the first two hour mission as an observer and come out of there screaming their brains out, terrified, and they want nothing to do with getting in a helicopter. Flying in a loach, especially on, in a mission profile, is like being on a roller coaster for about an hour. You gotta have abs of solid steel, uh, hyper-focused hyper attention because things happen kind of quick out there. A lot of uh, foliage, a lot of dense foliage, a lot of people hiding. Um, stuff happens quick. You get, uh, you get indoctrinated real fast into it uh, and you cross through the barriers you have to cross through to continue doing it. I have no idea how many hours I flew. I know it was for months. Um, wasn't really keeping track of how many hours I was flying as opposed to keeping track of when my year was up and I would be able to rotate back home. Uh, that did not happen. On uh, January the 10th, 1970, 
uh, out on a patrol just shy of the Cambodian border as best as I can remember. Um, we had been sent to look for an NVA regiment and we found them all. Uh, and they were all shooting at us. It was like the Disneyland fireworks at nine o'clock at night routine. And my life started flashing in front of my eyes. Uh, I thought, this is it, you're done. And I just did my job, you know, start shooting and shoot back. I felt the impacts and my left hand started flying around and it felt like somebody was hitting me with a baseball bat, which was an insane thought because who, there's not enough room in the backseat of a loach for me, never mind somebody else. Uh, and be able to swing a bat at me, and then it dawned on me, I'm shot. Uh, to back up a little bit, on the flight over from Oakland, two things were in the back of my mind. What would it feel like if I shot and killed someone, someone? and what would it feel like if I got shot? And I got both answers. Um, I was raised a Catholic. Human life is sacred to Catholics to be put in a situation where I had to go against Catholic credo. I didn't hesitate the first time. Uh, you can't, I did what I was supposed to do, did it the right way. And then getting shot, believe it or not, doesn't hurt. There was really no pain. I dropped my gun, my machine gun, and I picked it back up. Uh, Ron was the pilot and Rick, P Rick Pierce was flying as the observer. Rick Pierce was going to be a scout pilot you go out, you don't throw guys like that into the fire. They need a little experience to see the rhythms and the patterns and the routines and learn the communication between a door gunner and a pilot. And, you know, whatever hit the fan, uh, we limped away, kind of flopped down somewhere in a, next to an open field, uh, you know, gather weapons and ammo, you know, that's World War II movie stuff, but that's quite true. Um, Shot or not shot, I wanted weapons. Uh, we were way too close to them, and I didn't think that that day was going to be over. Uh, fortunately, we were flying in with a third helicopter, a UE that was basically our own personal air ambulance in case something happened. And we were down on the ground. We're trying to figure out who can handle what weapon. Ron Black decides to take the M60, and without asking me about it, he pulls the trigger and the barrel is right next to my foot and it fires because there was a, it was hot. The gun didn't jam. I dropped it because my arm hurt too bad. I couldn't close my finger on the trigger anymore. So I had a few choice comments of, of, about that to him. And then to Rick Pierce, I turned and said, welcome to Alpha Troop. Get used to this. It happens all the time. And having met him in a reunion, uh, the first one reading I went to was in Orlando in I think 2006, I think, I believe. My memory may be rusty on that one. Uh, I met him and he remembered that and he told me he flew his whole scout term, never got a scratch. And he goes, but I never forgot what you said. You, were, you had an intense look in your eyes and you weren't joking. Well, good. Well, somebody got something out of it. Yeah. Um, Actually, I'm gonna, I see Dustin is waiting to be admitted, so I'm going to bring okay. him in real quick. Click it right there. Can I harass him? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'd be disappointed if you didn't. Yeah, I do have a rep to maintain. Oh, hello, Mr. Dustin. Oh, hello. How are you, gentlemen? How was your nap? Dustin, how are you doing? I know what I'm going to get you for Christmas. An <laughs> yeah, what's lunch. that? An accurate watch <laughs> and a calendar. I had you guys on for 3.30. I'm sorry. 
was over right. at my dad's house helping him with his motorcycle. I know. Well, that's that's important. All right. Well, absolutely. Good to see you again. <laughs> nice to see you too. How are you, Mike? I'm doing good. Um, nice. Got myself a German Shepherd. Had her for about two years now. She is um, an absolute. She's not here right now. She's an absolute pleasure to have around. Uh, she has helped me tremendously with PTSD symptoms, um, the hypervigilance at night. Uh, if that if, if there's a noise and she doesn't react to it, I don't wake up. Or if I do, oh, it's awesome. briefly. She's not hooting and hollering. I go back to sleep. No more perimeter walking. No more, you know, dealing with that nonsense and all the sleep disruptions. It's been kind of nice to sleep in bursts at night rather than waking up every hour on the hour. You know? you've, like, you've subcontracted that to her? <laughs> yes, I decided to let her handle the uh, Homeland Security part of the residence. And if she doesn't start barking, and she doesn't like anybody. She doesn't like people walking by in the street. God forbid if you have a dog, if you're running on a bicycle. I live in, Ar well, you know, I live, well, you know, maybe you don't know. I live in Arizona. And it's fall now, which means it's not quite so freaking hot. We've gone from freaking hot to not so freaking hot. And then we'll go to just like sort of warm and tepid. So people are out walking more often. And she doesn't like anybody on the property. She doesn't like the mail lady. You know, and yet, and yet the mail lady pets her. But then the next day, she's right back at it again. She's kind of funny. That's okay. That, that's my girly girl. Nice. Sounds um, like yeah, and we'll we'll actually get back to to the nighttime uh, for yeah. for the audience. Um, but just talking about we we were just talking, Dustin, about um, his last flight. I assume that was your last flight in in the Scout. Uh, well, that last last flight as a Scout, um, my ulna was shattered somehow. I got shot three times in my left arm. Somehow, it all, it, all three of them and the shrapnel missed the artery. Wow. Right, it bled out because our rescue bird couldn't come down because a forward air controller had called in a whole bunch of F4s and F104s and were very happily napalming the 1st NVA regiment. I was getting a little antsy with him hovering up there at about 7,000 feet. And I turned to Ron Black and said, I'm going to shoot this MF down myself. If he doesn't come down here, what's taking so long? You know, it'd be nice to get out of here. And you know, and I was slipping into shock. I mean, we're out in a jungle and it's 90 degrees out there, 85, 90% humidity. I should be sweating. I'm shivering. I see goosebumps. You know, we've been trained for that kind of stuff. So uh, recognizing the signs of shock, but we're not out of, we're still in Kansas here. Uh, we are by in no means out of harm's way. And it was an effort to keep my brain functioning on a high enough level to be able to fight. Could I fight? And yeah, I, I felt I could. I couldn't use my machine gun because that's two hands, but I had a single shot grenade launcher and most of us had those and most of us were extremely accurate with them. And I thought we could, you know, do our own little Alamo or Custer's Last Stand or whatever. Those didn't exactly have happy endings for the good guys, but whatever. You know, I'd already decided that with the levels of injuries I had that I wasn't going to let myself be taken as a POW. I had taken a fragmentary grenade, straightened the pins out. You know, if you ever watch a World War II movie where a guy grabs a grenade and pulls the pin out with his teeth, your teeth are going to come out before you get the pin out of there. That's a stainless steel cotter pin, and it takes some oof to get those things straight or some oof to pull them. 
So I was straightening them out and Ron and Rick caught wind of that and didn't like that too much. And I told them then move out of the way. <laughs> you know, I'm not going and finding out what the Hanoi Hilton has to offer. I'm sure it isn't a spa and turn down and a little mint on the pillow or a chocolate chip cookie, little bottle, a little split of champagne. I didn't think any of that was in my immediate future if we would become POWs. Because all of us wear the identical flight suits and none of us wear ins rank or insignia. So I'm gonna be, it's gonna be assumed I'm a pilot and they were, not so nice to pilots over that trip, shall we say. So that was yeah. a part of uh, the Vietnam experience I had no desire to um, partake in. Fortunately, came down, the bird came down. We're climbing on with all our gear. Uh, the blue troop, which you know, Apache troop, how Apache troop works, the reds, whites, and blues. Uh, they are on the way to secure the site, haul away the helicopter. And John Williams was the pilot of the UE, and I think R.B. Alexander was sitting in the uh, left or right-hand seat. Um, ignore that. I'm going to potential spam. And when we had first gotten, we took heavy fire. We took, I don't know how many hits in the helicopter. We were leaking fuel from the tanks past the exhaust system. Sorry, I'm jumping around a little bit, but I'm sure your magical editors can figure it out. Uh, the raw fuel was flowing through the engine compartment by a uh, 600 degree tailpipe. So it creates smoke. And on an open mic, R.B. Alexander goes, they're going to blow. And I'm like, gee, guy, show me a little more confidence there, will you? you know, I, have better, I have more trust in my pilot than, than that. But my mechanic's ear could hear noises. You know, no conversation in a cockpit should ever start with, what was that noise? Particularly if it's in a helicopter, the bad things start happening after that. It, it gets nasty, it gets nasty fast. And, you know, we kind of limped away. We got picked up, I got taken to a, uh, well, the, a, a modern day version of MASH, the MASH units in Korea, kind of big inflatable bubble that we had in Tain In. Um, I refused to get in a wheelchair. I walked, uh, it was just my arm, my legs worked just fine. I was tired, I was weak. Uh, still cold, and got whipped into the operating, into the hospital. They cut off all my clothes. I had numerous scratches on my face and arms. There was shrapnel. I was sitting inside of just a swirling pool of bullet fragments, and I'm just lucky. I'm a lucky man, and I know I'm lucky, and I've tried to take advantage of every day because of it. You get given a chance like that, you better do something about it and move forward in your life in a positive way. Uh, but they wheel me into the OR and a surgeon walks in and I looked at him and asked him, am I keeping my hand? And he goes, quote unquote, I don't know, kid, you have three big holes in your hand. I am all of 18 years old. I've had enough with the macho BS. I want my mother. I want her now. And I want a big plate of spaghetti and meatballs, Italian comfort food. I'm Italian. Uh, when I woke up post-op, you know, he laying down and I'm on a big pillow, big bandage on here and I could see, I don't know if you can see this or not, but this part of my fingers I could see and I clenched that fist. The pain was so intense it knocked me out, but right before I went out, I realized that if it hurt, it worked and I calmed down. Right there was like, okay, you can handle this. You've been through worse. We can do this. Joe Foss was a World War II uh, veteran. He was an ace with the Marines. He was the governor of, I think, South Dakota. He was the commissioner of the AFL Football League a little before your time. 
and he oversaw the AFL merging into the NFL. He established an organization here that's still ongoing. Uh, and he, has a, he created a program called um, VIP, Veterans Inspiring Patriotism, and I got asked to do guest speaking. Like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll go do it. And essentially what we do is go into middle schools, high schools, I've been in a few colleges, and we talk about kind of what we're talking about now. What was the military like? Why did you go in? What happened? And then there's always a question and answer session. And if you want to be kept on your toes, sit in front of a bunch of teenagers who have built-in BS detectors and, and take that rapid fire stuff. And that question's come fast and furious, keeps me on my toes. Bad idea for me to expose myself to this. I, the first time I did a presentation, I slept like I was dead that night. I wow. slept through the entire night for the first time in more years than I care to think about. And when I had my next session with her, I told her about it. I said, no, I'm not going to stop. I mean, I'm up around 15, 16,000 students that I've spoken to, tens of thousands of questions I've answered. Uh, I find it therapeutic. I found it, you know, the current term, close the circle. Um, and I sleep like I'm dead every night. But whenever they want, you know, like now with, uh, with this virus nonsense going on, uh, I don't know if we're going to get to it this school year. Usually I go right around in August when the history classes get to Vietnam. And the other time I get out there a lot is uh, Veterans Day. So I'm hoping uh, for Veterans Day this year to get out. I just like being with kids. You know, yeah. the kids are uh, a joy to behold. Um, they're not mine. I'm sending them home. I don't have to take them home. It's like my grandkids. I send them home dirty and wired and go justice, mofos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the, yeah. It's the way it goes. Well, and I do want to ask you, I'm going to circle back to a couple things. Um, one, you're talking about how when you face a situation like where you got shot and realize you're lucky and, and you've been given a gift. And it's the same question that I asked R.B. Alexander the very first time we met him. Um, you know, and, and R.B.'s been on, on this podcast and he's not going to object to me saying this because we no, joke about it all the time. He he lives life to the full i mean he is he'll he'll be the first to tell you he's a little kid at heart wants to go surfing wants to go skiing and i asked him just point blank is like is that because of the night in vietnam where you told us you thought you were gonna die and, and he's like yes every day since that night has been a gift has been an absolute gift and i would be remiss if i didn't you know take you know if i wasn't appreciative of that gift would that be an accurate statement for you, you think, for that's that? Dead, dead on the money. And pretty much, when you go to the reunions, those are all uh, hardcore combat guys. There's no cooks, no dishwashers, there's no clerks. They don't go. They're welcome, but maybe they don't feel comfortable. Heck, I don't know. There's no mechanics. Nobody comes from there. And it's only recently that some of the blues have started showing up because they didn't think they would feel welcome. And it's like, hold on there. You're part of a troop. And you're a big part of A-Troop. We all depended on each other. But yes, uh, the second childhood, I've gotten old enough to the point, I've had enough surgeries to the point where doing things that had the potential to be fatal uh, because it was exciting. And it, you're, what RB was saying, and, and we'd all agree with this, we're looking for the adrenal, adrenaline rush of flying a patrol knowing you're going to be getting shot at and you're going to shoot somebody. A lot of veterans came back they went to fire departments, they went to police departments, they went to work on high wire workers, they worked in dangerous, risky jobs, and none of it comes close. 
not even remotely close. Um, so you try to do it in other ways, you know, let's surf the next biggest way. Well, I really don't have the experience to surf this way, but well, let's do it. Sounds like a good idea. You know, uh, you know, somebody said I'm living my second childhood and I looked at them and said, what makes you think I was done with my first? Yeah. Uh, you, you can't see it, but right next to me on my right uh, in the driveway is a 2009 Hemi Challenger that I've beefed up to about 525 horsepower. It's a six-speed, and if it had wings, it would take off because this thing is frighteningly fast. I own it with a friend of mine. Uh, he drives it like a little old lady. I drive it like I stole it. The car, oh, is, meant, the car is meant to be run hard, and I run the snot out of it. And that's, you know, the... You know, I can get older, but nobody can make me grow up. <laughs> At family reunions and things like that, if you want to know where I am, find the kids. Because the adults bore me half to death. Well, in flying a loach, they did say, you know, we had it described to us, it's like NASCAR in the sky, or, you know, like Pretty being much. in a, the Ferrari yeah. of helicopters. The Ferrari of helicopters. Uh, some of the pilots were better at exploring what's known as a flight envelope. Uh, one pilot in particular, and I flew a lot with him, and he's not going to complain about this, is Bill McIntosh. I knew you were going to say Bill McIntosh rewrote the flight manual on that thing. He, you know, it's like, hey, this sounds like a good idea. Why, why, why? What do you want to do? And then we're in it. You know, it's like, I didn't think you could fly backwards that fast. Um, a loach would loop. He did it right. Wow. I would yeah, never, I will never admit to having done that because that would have violated all government policies at the time. So. They uh, they did that in the um, the James Bond movie. They looped the helicopter. Right. Um, but yeah, every single every single story we've gotten about this crazy pilot did this to save our butt. It's always Bill McIntosh. Every time. Right. Every time. Yeah. A absolutely. Um, put his skid down on the side of a bomb crater that was no larger than the loach to get in there put his skid down on the side of a mountain like <laughs> yeah i wasn't with him for those days we did enough other crazy insane stuff that you know afterwards you sit back in the seat and you wipe your crowded we just do that and are we still alive yeah well okay well that's another one for the books and let's go teach everybody else how to get away with this um but the maneuverability and the ability to stop a loach on a dime and then take off like a paperclip from a rubber band. That would have been a hard target to hit from the ground. I have looked into multiple barrels with muzzle flashes seemingly right into my eyes and they missed. I didn't, but they did. Well, and that kind of, you know, you were in, in Vietnam, what, 19 years old when you're on? 18. Yeah, 18 when you were sent. Uh, the pilots, 19, 20, 21 19, years 20, old. 21, maybe. Um, you're, giving, you're giving these 19, 18, 19, 20-year-old guys a helicopter. <laughs> that, a, brand, a brand new state-of-the-art. We had state-of-the-art weapons and enough testosterone to sink a battleship. Um, invincible, immortal, never dawned on us. You know, you, you don't openly acknowledge the risk factor because that's distracting and you can't afford to let yourself ever get distracted. Yeah. Well, on that, we, we talked to Craig Jorgensen about when he was a LERP and his team got decimated 
Uh, I've seen that video. And they tried to pull him out of the field because, you know, the problem is, especially with the LERPs who are out there alone, you need them to feel invincible. And they had problems when they found out that they weren't. Admitting weakness, that that you're injured and you have to admit to yourself, I am not combat effective. And any soldier that's not willing to do that puts um, other soldiers' lives at risk. You want to see a guilty soldier? Find one who lost somebody by either something he did or didn't do. You had a guy with survivor guilt that will never, ever, um, you can talk about it, you can treat it, you can't cure something like that. It will never go away. I have enough bad survivor's guilt as it is. You know, the general attitude is, why me? Why them, not me? You know, am I just that much lucky? Is that what we're gonna tell us out there? It's not like not, we all weren't equally talented. It's not like we all weren't as equally, I mean, we ran those M60 machine guns with like pinpoint laser accuracy. You know, phasers help a lot with that. But still, you know, you got to get right on target, right off the bat. Yeah, I don't have time to, for that couple of milliseconds to adjust. Uh, that's that's the life or death difference. And survivor guilt, yeah. Uh, we go to the Vietnam Wall, uh, yeah, you bet there's survivor guilt. Did you guys go to the Alexandria reunion? We did. We, one of the treasured things I've ever done is was to go out to the wall with uh with you know um Jim Brown and um Ed Beal was there and Doc and um, Jack Hughley and Paul McCord that was the first time we'd met Paul McCord um and to go to the wall with them was um it's a pretty special day we went I went with wall. a group of guys who had never seen the wall and at that point in time I'd seen the real one twice and I'm not looking at the camera. Uh, and I've seen the replica traveling walls probably a half a dozen times. And knowing that this is their first time, I was kind of like watching over my shoulder. We essentially have our own panel. There's so many, I mean, a hundred guys, it's a lot of people. Yeah. Um, it, it's humbling. Uh, it, it drives you to your knees, you can't help it. Um, but there's groups of us, and it's not uh, what most people, uh, common to what, or contrary to what most people would think. We're not sitting there telling war stories. How you doing? We've been around each other enough. How's your wife doing? How's the grandkids? Who's this? Who's that? How you doing with your health? It's all of that. It's when somebody new shows up, and that's another piece of the puzzle to plug in. And then that, you know, the jungle drums start beating. It's like so-and-so is here, and you drift over and uh, make contact with them. And what piece of the story? Because everything was pretty compartmentalized. You know, I never, I go out a pre-flight a helicopter or two, load my guns up there, get some piece of me observer to sit up in the front seat and get in the back seat, we take off. And only a couple of times did I ask a pilot, where are we going, what are we doing? You don't want to know. Just got to go to your job. Absolutely right. I know I don't want to know. I don't want to think about it, but we would go out there flying at 22, 2300 feet. And then it was showtime. You're dropping down and you know starting weaving around the bob and weave routine around trees and whatnot and uh, ex- exchanging pleasantries with indigenous personnel generally at high rates of fire um, yeah international relations <laughs> right 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 yeah it's um well i i know you have general a Pat, general Patton had the ultimate line don't you die for your country make the other sucker die for his country yeah. <laughs> um i know you've got uh a time limit here. So I want to get into returning home. Don't want to lead you in and I don't want to pretend every Vietnam veteran had the same welcome home um, 
I'll put it this way. Did you come back through California or Texas? And I came back by way of from Vietnam to Japan for surgery and, and initial rehab and then to Alaska in a C-130 on a, on a stretcher. I can't describe how much fun that wow. was. Um, sorry, I had to look away from the, my camera again. And then from Alaska, we went to Walter Reed. And then from Walter Reed, I was, I had request, I found a chaplain and he managed to get me back to St. Albans Naval Hospital in Queens, New York, which is very close to where I live in Brooklyn. So that my family, friends and whatnot could see me in the hospital. So I, oh, I got lucky. An, yet another, yes, very lucky break. A very, very lucky break. Walter Reed back in those days was to be avoided like the plague. It had its more than its fair share of problems. They had uh, I, I, the, the concept of sterile then versus now was, let's just say, a little different. And in, the, in a Navy hospital and you're an Army personnel, you're like square peg, proverbial round hole type of thing. Yeah. But it was okay. You know, eventually got discharged, uh, went home. Uh, had a 30 day leave before I was going to be reassigned. And, you know, yeah, I was the hearing the, hearing the trucks backfire because everything was carbureted in those days. It was very little fuel injection. So, you know, a carburetor out of adjustment or the timing off, you're going to get a backfire. That sounds like a hand grenade going off sometimes, especially with big trucks. So yeah, I was one of those quaking and hiding under bushes and stuff like that. And my civilian friends, nobody knew what to do. Nobody said anything. Um, my family, all, the, all my aunts in the family, they were speechless. They didn't know what to do. My closest female cousin, uh, Karen. Yeah, you're famous, Karen. I love you. Uh, her, her family nickname is Sugar. Uh-oh, now I'm in trouble. That's okay. She'll see this. Uh, she told me once I was sitting at the table with my arm in a cast and my fork was halfway to my mouth and I was not there. I was into that thousand-yard stare thing. And then it suddenly, it, it snaps back with like, it's like being slapped in the face, or at least it was for me a few times. And then you realize all the time I was over there, I wanted to be right here, literally right where I was sitting. And now that I'm sitting here, I want to be back there because I know what's going on. I know what's happening. My friends are getting hurt and I wanted to go back and I knew I couldn't. And it was frustrating. It was very, very frustrating. Well, and that's... Um... In Vietnam, for the audience, they had what's called the staggered return policy. And obviously, your your return policy was a, a bit adjusted due to getting shot. But people would rotate in one at a time and out one at a time. But I, I, I can understand the Army's thinking of that way we will always have experienced people doing this job. It also meant you always had rookies <laughs> doing the job. But... You know, now they've changed it. You go over to that together, you come back together. And, and because people would come home alone, like you left, all your buddies are there. You've got no one to talk to at home. But um, like you were just saying, you still had your buddies to worry about. And, and there was no Zoom back then. There was no FaceTime. There was no nothing. Snail mill. Yeah. I mean, what what is that like for the audience who, who maybe <clears throat> thinks they know what that might be like? What was that like to, to just... Well, that's the two ways things were done. I mean, in World War II, entire companies trained together, which leads to high levels of fraternization. 
which becomes a problem was your buddy dies, you're now combat ineffective. So in my time, I went over there with on, on a Boeing 707 with 250 guys that I never saw again. Um, and my time with Alpha Troop, by nature, I'm fairly gregarious, but it was intimidating enough that I was very quiet. Uh, pilots certainly hung out and did their own thing. I didn't interact with too many guys there. I had a sixth sense of, I make a good friend, I'm going to lose a good friend, or he's going to lose a good friend, and I didn't like either side of that coin. Um, to deal with that in some uh, through a civilian's eyes, that, that's impossible to conceptualize. You have to be there. You have to be in that living in that moment. There's no, um, I can't think of the word at the moment, but there's just no way to convey that. And I'm not saying civilians in a, neg in a negative way. To me, the difference between veterans and civilians, veterans don't feel like we're better than anybody else. We're different. Our experiences shaped us into who and what we are. That's why World War II vets came home and basically built the country. They were pretty highly motivated. Um, when we came home, all I remember thinking is, leave me alone. I've been seeing and doing things no 18-year-old should be doing, especially with a 19-year-old pilot. I can't think of a worse combination, but oddly enough, it worked. It worked because it was never been done, never been tried. Okay, let's give this a whirl. But in terms of, you know, trying to live it vicariously, you can't do that. You can't understand that the first time you realize a bullet hit your helicopter, that was aimed for you. That changes you. I can remember the first, sort of a halfway funny story actually, but I still remember the first. I can't. I don't remember who the pilot is, and I definitely can't remember the observer. Um, we had flown out on a patrol, and the pilot didn't say anything. He just dove down on a mission profile, and there's a piece of avionics equipment in, in in those days in anything that flew, and it was called an ADF, an automatic direction finder. It works on AM frequency, which means we could play Armed Forces Network music in the helicopter. And it wasn't too common to play it on the way out, but it was playing on the way out. I had my head leaning back against the bulkhead. I was daydreaming. Um, I think my gun was loaded and I was listening to smile, little smile for me, Rosemary, when the overhead window got shot out. And the pilot said, you know, are you planning on getting involved with this? You know, and I, I made a, an abrupt comment about shutting the music off with a couple more words in there. Gotcha. And uh, yeah, you know, we got ready to go back to business. And after that, it was like, no. Sometimes after the missions, if they were intense, sometimes we would listen to Armed Forces Network to like dial down a little bit. Sometimes it would be really quiet in the in the in the cabin, and sometimes it'd be really chatty. Got you know, be the observer and the pilot were just yakking away with each other like it's going out of style. You know, whatever you got to do to decompress, you got to do to decompress. But as far as what's better, going over with a company and, every, and you know everybody, the good part about that is you train together, you know how to react together. The bad part of that is the fraternization and the loss. You go over fragmented, and you brought it up earlier about you know going out with total rookies. As a general rule, I always 
was aware of, if we're taking out a brand new pilot, there's an experienced observer and experienced gunner. You can't send three rookies. They're not coming back. There's going to be a mistake made. There's some kind of communication that won't happen. Uh, utilizing your gun bird, that little cobra floating around up there with a very serious, serious attitude and a sting to it. When to use it, how to use it, when to deploy it. Um, that takes time, that takes experience. And you learn that, like, like we all do, we fly as an observer. Uh, I flew long enough where I felt comfortable in the helicopter, the routine was normal to me. I had a pilot take me out and check me out as a gunner and test me for accuracy and stuff like that. Passed that with flying colors and started flying as a gunner and then just, it was one day at a time and then it was one hour at a time and you know one minute at a time because you just don't know. And you live with that uncertainty for a long time. I got first calf friends within miles of me that are still in a bunker and they can't get out and it breaks my heart. Why could I do it? Why am I so much, you know, I'm not smarter than they are. I'm not better than they are. Uh, we're equals, we're peers. Um, when I talk about it with them and they just, they don't do well in public and they don't go out alone. And when we go out in public, we have a tendency to go together and I kind of run interference, try to keep us out of certain types of environments that'll trigger them off. Uh, the PTSD is real. And VA went through a bit of a time back a few years ago where some freshly trained Harvard geniuses decided that PTSD is going to be curable. PTSD is not a psychological condition. It's classified in the uh, physician's desk reference, PDR, as a, um, a disease. And it is classified as treatable, but not curable. You know, we talked with uh, Dr. Roy Clymer, um, who used to be head of, of um, at Walter Reed for basically, it's got a very long name to it, but basically treating uh, post-traumatic stress. And that was one of the turning points for us in this, in the story that we're telling of, well, first of all, he hates, he hates that they call it a disorder. He's like, it's not a disorder. It's just it's a learned behavior. A learned behavior it's a different experiences you come from a place where you hear a loud noise you duck or you could die dust and i don't come from that place so we're going to have different reactions to a car backfiring and if it was the three of us dustin and i would be in the majority and you know society <laughs> wants to say well you're not in the majority so therefore you must be wrong no one's wrong it's well, just a it's anybody just, can be traumatized exactly you get in a bad car crash and you live and your friend dies. Yep. Congratulations. You just got PTSD. Welcome to my world. Yeah. And that's it kind of why it's not just combat that it comes from. Yeah. And we were, uh, and I know this quote well, cause I've been working on it in the edit for about a week now. I think it's, and I don't want to say I, this is from Dr. Clymer. It's very hard for society to bridge this gap. And, and the direct quote is, you know, we don't live in a world where I'm afraid I'm just going to suddenly come down with something like bipolar. I don't, I don't sit there and worry about that, but I do worry, and I'm using I very generally as society, I do worry that something very traumatic could happen to me today that leads me to have PTS, and I don't want to think about that. And so therefore, it's very hard to talk to veterans about that, because I don't want to be exposed to this thing that I don't know how I would deal with that. And 
as a veteran, what we like to ask, and, and, you know, we are trying to work on something to, to, to talk with veterans, especially during the lockdown, but we don't want to talk so much with veterans. We want to start talking to society about how we can bridge that gap. Like, how would you, for any civilians, I really hate you because it, it can seem bad, but anyone who hasn't been in the military, like, what would you as a veteran say? Like, how, how can we start bridging that gap of talking about PTS? Well, I just sort of, I just sort of mentioned it a couple of minutes ago. Uh, and as I said earlier, the Veterans Inspiring Patriotism uh, program through the Joe Foss organization, that gets me in front of very impressionable young minds and trying to convey to them what it feels like. And I use that example all the time. You and your best friend are in a car crash. She dies, you don't. That's trauma. And, and no, you're not going to forget that. And that's the first trap that PTSD offers. You try to block it out. doesn't work. Um, you try to lock it away in a little box in the back of your mind. That definitely doesn't work. It has to be confronted, openly dealt with. Uh, I've been lucky enough uh, to talk with veterans and their wives and their or the little children down there, adults now, about I can verbalize those feelings. Some of the other guys don't have or can't say it out loud. They know it as intrinsically as a sense and a giant dark cloud. Uh, it's heartbreaking for me to see it. Uh, these are good, highly productive, well-qualified people. And it's the civilians in their lives that are paying the price. Uh, the uh, anger, anger comes out of nowhere at, at lightning speed. Uh, that has taken a lot of counseling and a lot of self-awareness of the space I'm in. So for civilians, and this is what I used to talk about with the kids. I said, if you got your mother, your father, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, when they come home from the military, don't ask them about the military. Ask them, to, I want to go to a ball game. Take me for ice cream. Take me to a movie. Take me to the park. Play a board game with me. Get them distracted and get them because their normal has to change to the new normal. I'm back in the civilian world again. I can't have that normal I had in the combat zone. That's different. That, that awareness, that absolutely hyper alert activity that you're constantly turned on. I mean, ask any of the guys in HU. Ask them if they ever slept with both eyes closed. They're going to say no. None of us did. We got mortared constantly. We got overrun ones that I remember. Uh, it wasn't bad enough flying. You can't even get a couple hours of shut-eye at, at night without you know, sleeping with loaded weapons ready to rock and roll at a moment's notice. How do you replicate that in the civilian world? You can't. You can do all the simulators you want. You can do all the video games you want. Uh, years ago, my friends wanted me to go hunting. And I said, hunting for what? We're going to go get deer. Deer. So I get the whole cull the herd thing. I mean, I get that. Um, me covering myself with deer urine, sitting up on a blind on a tree for three days, freezing my canastas off, isn't appealing to me. But on the other hand, <laughs> if my family needs to eat, Bambi's going down with one shot in the head. Yeah. That. You know, that juxtaposition you live with every day, that you're capable of doing that and turning around and going back to sleep. 
um, same group of guys wanted to go paintballing. I said, sure, I'll go with paintballing. Let's use live ammo. Let's make it challenging. Yeah, paintball stings a little bit when you get hit in the face or bare skin. No, let's make it for real, man. Let's let, let you discover what a 308 feels like when it hits human skin. It's pretty destructive. Yeah. Well, I mean, I said it jokingly with them, but, you know, that's with civilian friends, there's that line in the sand. Um, and it's not that it isn't crossable. Uh, it's definitely as I've gotten older, as I tackle the bull by the horns, and it's like, I have to win this fight. I have young kids. I have grandchildren that are young. I want to be here. I don't feel like I have to. I just want to. I want to be part of their lives. I have reasons to live. I've got a 4,000-pound, four-tired beast in the driveway. Believe me, I wake up every morning looking for an excuse to go in a grocery run in that bad boy. Uh, it's Can you reestablish that zest for life again? You know, We're talking about RB and doing all kinds of crazy, exciting, adrenaline uh, pumping kind of stuff. Yeah, and then you got to come down for that. Assuming you haven't broken any bones. Um, yeah. You know, I've had a couple of instances where it wasn't real clear I was going to survive this. But once you survive the war, it doesn't occur to you or to me that I'm not going to get through this. I win. Yeah. I, I can't let the demons in. You know, it's, I don't want, I wouldn't wish what living in my brain or RB's brain or Ron Black or Bill McIntyre. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy on the planet to have to experience what goes on in your head on a day-by-day basis and then have to be nice and hold the door for the little old lady coming and getting her groceries. Um, and then the little old lady, you know, we, we touched on it briefly. Coming back to the civilian world for me from Vietnam was very, very different because I did it through the medical side of the house. And then it was suddenly out in the streets and there were incidents. There was multiple incidents where it dawned on me I didn't want to take, none of us wanted to take a tape parade. This isn't World War II. Uh, we want to be left alone. Don't buy me a car, I'll buy my own. I don't, I don't need you to give me a house. I don't need you to find me a girlfriend or a wife. I'll do it on my own. And we not only were not left alone, you know, I, I can't even begin to describe what it feels like to have somebody, well, technically my peer group, uh, I prefer to use age group, those are not my peers. Call me a baby killer. Call me a murderer. And I'm like, hold on there. You know, those you got legitimate comments there, but you know, I'm the messenger. Uh, go to the source of the problem. But you don't. You lack the. They lack the courage to do that. Something that happens commonly now is I get younger people walk up. I have purple heart plates on my car. I'm usually wearing a hat with some kind of insignia. Today I got a shirt on because we're on camera. Thank you for serving. And it took me a while to figure out how to respond to that. Saying thank you seemed conceited. And finally, uh, I mean, saying you're welcome seemed conceited. And I started saying, thank you. We really appreciate that. And we do. I do. I, I take it. But when it's somebody in my age group, I can't help it. Guys, I cannot help it. Where were you 50 years ago when a quick pat on the back and it's all over now, you're going to be okay, would have gone miles and miles you know, I, I'll get a bunch of teenagers. They'll see my purple heart place and go, oh, that's cool. Uh, <laughs> Not how you earned it. <laughs> uh, well, guys, it wasn't too cool at the time, but I get your point. And then they don't know what it is. So I explain it. And it's like, oh, wow. You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
yeah it, it is, yeah, it is cool. cool i agree it's cool i i'm sorry you had to earn it but it is cool <laughs> well at least i lived to talk about it yeah i forgot who i was flying with so a piece of shrapnel nicked me in my flight suit on, on my right shoulder it didn't even bleed it was like using a, a thumbtack and scraping your skin it doesn't bleed it's turned red mm-hmm. and the pilot is like hey i'll write you up for purple heart for that and I, I wish I could remember who it was. Because so I told him, you write me up for a Purple Heart on our next mission, you're going to get one and it's going to be friendly fire. <laughs> I'm going to shoot you right in the back of the, back of the leg. Yeah. He, he, he didn't bother writing that up either. Because you got a boo-boo? <laughs> I got a boo-boo. He didn't even need a Band-Aid. I didn't even go to the medics. It's like, dude, it's not bleeding. You know, who, who cares? Not- <laughs> well, if you're going to run for president or something, you should have taken that. Like, yeah, no. Yeah, well, yeah, that's, yeah, I know who you're talking about, and I yeah. know a lot more about that than has ever been released out into the general public. Yeah, uh, I'll retract that before we get too far into politics for the audience. Uh, yeah, no, no politics <laughs> in, this, in this channel. Um, but I do want to segue a little bit of what we're talking about in terms of, you know, you'll get the younger generation now, and it seems like the worm has turned a little in terms of of your age group for Vietnam vets. I mean, now you actually have people uh, stolen valor pretending to be Vietnam vets. That's a, that's a 180. Um, That's a burn in my saddle too. Yeah. And I don't blame you. Um, Nowadays we have an, an extra layer, so to say to veterans coming home of, um, you know, the lockdown of cutting off a lot of, avenues to be able to talk to uh, pts <laughs> groups not being allowed to meet uh, and there is no way to pussyfoot around this there is a rise in the suicide rate even above what it was um, as a vietnam veteran who has that experience the 50 years of experience the welcome that you got come sorry for people on the podcast channels i'm doing air quotes around welcome um what advice do you have to modern day troops about, um, there are a lot, I hate to say it, but there are a lot of parallels right now in terms of how the public views our military engagements and um, and the way our government is being looked at. You have this experience, what, what advice would you offer? You can't crawl in the bottle. You gotta learn to talk to each other. Um, from a career point of view for a career soldier, having to discuss PTSD, PTSD is a deal killer. They just won't do it. The suicide rate is absolutely heartbreaking for me. Um, I've interacted with a few of the younger guys. I have my phone number, it's 24 seven. Don't do it. Uh, to uh, If I was speaking to a larger group of them, all of you should know each other's phone numbers. You cannot let each other go. You will. You won't leave anybody. The saying on the battlefield is to leave no one behind. My attitude towards that is, why would I start doing it now? Why would I leave anybody behind now? Uh, it, it's there, there's still life on the line here. This is still life and death. Uh, the frustration they feel when they drop into that never, never land from um, being discharged from the military before the VA catches up. That can be a year to 18 months. These guys don't have any pay. They have no income. Uh, I've helped set up um, resume writing to translate military MOSs. What does that mean in the civilian world to do that with them? Uh, there was a, it's closed now, unfortunately, a homeless vet shelter 
in downtown Phoenix that I poured a lot of time, a lot of money into, uh, and it just and it just vaporized. You can't quit. The word quit doesn't exist in my vocabulary. It's just somebody who's a veteran, whether you serve in a combat arena or not, there's no quit. You do. Yes, some days are really, really dark. You need phone numbers in that phone. Hey, I'm not feeling too good. Okay, let's talk. Want to meet? What do you want to do? I don't care. Three o'clock in the morning, fine. I bring the dog. You know, I mean, literally, the do- my dog is, is a big time icebreaker. Mm. Uh, I have a friend who's a highway patrolman here. He has PTSD, pretty bad. Um, and that dog is his lifeline. Uh, he comes in the house. She runs right to him. Plus that he gives, he, he gives her ice cubes soaked in bourbon, which might have something to do with it. I already told him when she has cirrhosis of the liver, I'm giving him the veterinarian bill. But the young people, you, you can't stop. You wouldn't stop before. So wh- why now? I, I'm not seeing that disconnect in there. I can understand how the walls can feel like they're closing in. I get that. Been there, done that. Um, the suicidal ide- ideation is real. Uh, it's, uh, well, we talk about contemporary vets, you know, 22 a day, which I think is abominable. Um, suicidal ideation in Vietnam that still exists today. We had a couple guys that they're, they're ready to swallow a gun barrel. Like, they're a full bomb. Can we talk about this a little bit first? You know, what are the implications of that? You've led a, a good, honorable, productive life. And the last thing we're going to remember is you swallowed a 45. Does that make sense to you? I mean, and, you know, put the gun down. I'm not going to go grab it out of your hands. I can see it's loaded and the safety's off. Put it down. What does this do? You know, what, why would you leave us all feeling that badly about you? That's, you know, when I went through that in the early 70s, um, one particular incident, I was working as an assistant engineer in a 42-story building in Manhattan. I was on the roof with a parapet wall that's maybe three feet high. I was sitting on the parapet wall, straddling the wall, looking down 42 stories, ready to let it go because I was so frustrated. Everything was going wrong in my life. And the next thought I had was, you don't remove yourself from the problems. You remove the problems from you. And I slipped back over the wall and I've had my weak moments over the years since then. But that concept of move the problems from you, you can't remove, you're going suicidal you're not removing any kind of a problem. You're making an even bigger one. You're going to give your mom, your, your dad, your grandparents, uh, brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, blah, 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 girlfriend, wife, your own children. Is this the legacy you want to leave? And that answer should be no. I'm not a qualified psychologist by any stretch of the imagination. I've been through a bazillion hours of intense therapy to get to this point. And some days are better than others. You know, PTSD is sneaky and insidious. You get traumatized. You're going along with your life. You're in the military. You come out. Um, you're trying to get your life jump-started again. A wife, maybe a kid or two. You've uh, gone to some vocational school for education to be whatever you want to be. Uh, that kind of thing. And then somewhere in your 40s, it jumps up and bites you in the butt. Hard. And you don't know why. Because there's too much of a disconnect between the causal factor of your wartime experience and 20 plus years later. That's the part nobody talks about. It's that little gap in there. That's the deadly one. Yeah, I mean- That one showed up for me. It absolutely destroyed my entire life. 
I lost, uh, I ended up divorced. Although I ended up with the kid, um, which I was okay and willing to give up anything for. Uh, that was the best decision of my life. But to young people, hey guys, girls, stand tall and talented. Don't give up. You can't quit. Doesn't work that way. Yeah. And you're talking about that causal disconnect. You know, it's, it's easier if you come home and then, you know, you're having, you know, these, um, to cope with this and to work through this, you can connect that right to that experience you just came home from. <clears throat> but when it pops up 20, 30 years later, you're not automatically going to think, oh, I bet this is because of Vietnam. Yeah. And it, exactly. it does. Exactly. You know, they talk about World War II vet combat vets in four years in whatever theater they were in, average about 44 to 50 days of combat in four years. Average Vietnam vet, 250 days out of a year. Uh, yeah. I'm not trying to take anything away from a World War II vet. Their fighting was vicious, brutal, savage. It had to be. Uh, who was going to, what kind of world we were going to have was resting squarely on their shoulders. That's an intense amount of pressure. I didn't feel like we were fighting for, to protect the citizens of this country at that time. It was to give South Vietnam its freedom to be a country and live their own and not be swallowed up by communism. Yeah, and I mean, that's, you know, the advent of the helicopter. You guys, you know, there's a lot of repositioning in World War II when you're talking about moving across the entire country of France. They had to Germany. walk. Yeah. They walked across country. We yeah. Flew. Everywhere. Yeah. Instant reaction. Um, the blues could go from sitting around, lounging around during the day and scramble the airborne in less than five minutes and be on site. 20, 30 minutes later, we're close enough to it to start dealing with it. Uh, from a hunter killer team's perspective, particularly the hunter perspective, that's a very comforting thought to know they're ready to drop whatever they're doing and run. Uh, when the scramble horn go goes off, it's all hands on deck. You don't know what's happened. You just know it's bad. Uh, get out there. Wish they would come for me. I'm going to come for them. Um, I forgot what reunion it was. Maybe it was Tao. The Blues showed up, about, about a dozen of them. And they're all wearing blue scarves, so I knew right away who they were. And I just walked over, introduced myself, and as soon as I said I was a tour, they were, like, bowing down. It was like, stop, you, this is embarrassing. What's up? He goes, you don't know what it's like to have your face in the mud and hear the whine of that little helicopter because you guys were psychos. You would fight under any circumstances to try to get us back out of there. There's no way to pay that back. Yeah, really. So the times I got shot down and you bailed my butt out of the jungle, you know, uh, it's reciprocal. It's a two-way street was where that conversation ended up. Craig told us. We experience what it's like on the ground when you're trapped in an ambush and you don't dare lift a finger, never mind your face, and try to take a pot shot with a, an M16 or an M60 or M79, whatever you're pl playing with at the moment. And hear the, you know, that little, loaches have a very distinctive kind of whiny sound to them. You know what it is. Sounds like a, a bumblebee on 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 uh, speed. Eh, you know, just that kind of a sound. But it's distinctive. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I saw that point right away and I, it was perfectly logical to me. 
and they've been they, they, well. We'd had an Albuquerque reunion. I know there'd be some of them there. They are welcome. They always will be welcome. They are part of the troop. There's no. It's not like VHPA, Vietnam Helicopter Pilots Association, made itself exclusive to pilots. And I told them to go do something anatomically impossible when they wanted me to pay dues, but I wasn't welcome. It's like, are you serious? <laughs> uh, no. And it, it took a lot of years. And at the point, it was almost too late. Uh, I'm not sure how many years ago, but it can't be more than 15 or 20. Uh, and their um, contributors, their, their members are dwindling. Um, pretty much all the World War II guys are gone. Most of the Korean guys are going to be gone. The Vietnam era is up next. We're the next big batch of funerals that's coming down the road. I'm one of the youngest, I think, out of the whole troop, we figured out there's me and another guy, and I—he was born in June, I was born in April—that uh, were literally just turned 18 and in country. But when I look at you know some of the other guys at the reunion, especially the last one, uh, and realize the numbers are dwindling badly, we only had 60 or 61 in KC, and uh, Ron Livingston and I did not miss that. We caught that right away, and that—that's that, where the conversation started. Should we be going to yearlies? Can the guys afford it? Can they handle the stress of the traveling? These aren't young spring chickens. What's in their heart and their desire? Unquestioned. Got a shadow of a doubt. Um, Ron Livingston um, has been doing Zoom meetings with the troop. Yep. Uh, and I tried to join one last week. And because the camera problem wasn't resolving itself, they couldn't see me, but I could see them and I could hear them. Ron has decided to go to the administrator level and get the subscription to uh, Zoom. And he's going to run it from there. We'll probably have a meeting, I think, at the end of the month. He talked about maybe the first or second of November, somewhere in there. And I saw a couple of the guys that were online. And it was glad to see them. Virgil was there. I mean, it was just really, these are guys I've had, you know, Ron and I have had and uh, Virgil have had intense conversations about aviation. I've been an AMP mechanic most of my life. Um, and I've had a pilot's license and I fly. I speak the language and can go back and forth. Um, and they're not heated conversations, they're fun conversations because we get to explore our, our own accumulated knowledge uh, and in, in various fields. And that, that part is kind of fun. And, and you know, you kind of miss that. That's one of the things with this, uh, this isn't a pandemic, this is a pandemic. I probably shouldn't have said that. I didn't <laughs> feel, feel free to yeah, edit it out if you want. Um, well, I yeah, I sat in on the um, September Zoom reunion. Just wanted to kind of give an update on where the movie's at and, and talk about the podcast. And um, it was fun to be on. Although at one point, you know, we're talking. Um, I, I added to the conversation, and someone who hadn't been on the reunions or met me before was like, "Whoa, whoa, who was that?" You. You look very well preserved for a Vietnam veteran, and you know, <laughs> General Funk explained it. But I said, "Hey, if you know how many injuries and surgeries I've had, I'm not very well preserved." <laughs> Between sports and law enforcement, there's a lot of injuries in there. <laughs> Name you just dropped. Um, officers come in one of two categories: they're either commanders or their leaders. When they are commanders, they give orders and expect them to be obeyed. But when you take, give an order like that, that's all they're gonna do. 
when you lead men, they'll follow you into hell and probably drag you back out. He was a leader par excellence. He undoubtedly the best commanding officer in history. He used to fly with us. He would get out. Uh, I don't remember him flying in loaches, but I know he would take Cobras because I went out with him in Cobras. Uh, he is much beloved. Um, Ron and Ron Livingston and I were talking about doing something for him, you know, acknowledging, you know, what he means to us, uh, to have somebody like that who had your back all the time and understood the insanity of what we were doing on a day-to-day basis. And no, we can't do regular army. No, you're not going to polish your boots, shave. If I had water, I drank it. You know, I wasn't about to waste shaving with it. You know, I've dried, I've dried two, toothpaste and a toothbrush dry. Yeah, yeah. You want your kids to figure out what we were doing a little bit? Get a toothpaste with no water and nothing to rinse it out with. You just got to put up with it. I went to a, there's been, I think this is the last year, um, they did a commemorative 10 year of the Vietnam War in the state of Arizona. It was well funded, well done. And uh, General, oh God, I can't think of this. He came to, he was going to be the, the keynote speaker. And I was at the bar and this little short guy, hey, you mind if I cut in front of you? I am a New York wise ass. And I was about to smart off. And it was just something about him that, would you be the keynote speaker, General? Yeah, yes, sir, go right ahead. And I asked him if he knew General Funk and he looked at me and he goes, are you one of those crazy A troopers? And I said, yeah. He goes, that's all he ever talks about is that time in A troop. The guy had a 40 year career, a 30 plus year in the career, uh, military career. He was a three star general. His son just got his second star. Fourth. I mean, he's talking about family legacy. Fourth star. He now outranks his dad. He's a four, four he's star. already career. got the fourth? Yeah. Oh my God. Wow. But that's a TASOC guy coming up. That's for sure. If you're not already, that's amazing. Well, that just took me aback for a minute. I knew he had two. I didn't hear about three. Now you're telling me it's four. That's meteoric. Well, he was he was the commanding general at Fort Hood, as his yeah. father was, and, yeah. and now I was his fourth. So I was talking to General Funk a couple of months ago, and I was like, hey, they want to rename all these bases. I'm, I'm waiting for Fort Funk. It doesn't roll off the tongue as well. Right. But, and he's, he's like, no, no, I will never... You know, he's the type of guy, every time we see him, he asks me to take him out of the movie a bit more because it's not about the generals, it's about the troops. And I was like, well... You know, and, and when I see him, I keep calling him General, and he keeps saying to me, Mike, it's Paul. And I look at him and I said, Paul, maybe we're proud, and maybe we feel like it's an honor to call you General. I mean, you're a commanding officer, you're a, ca- a captain. He'll never admit to this, but there's pictures of it. All he ever walked around the compound with was a flak jacket on, no shirt, and on the back it said, "If you ain't cab, you ain't spit." Yep. Substitute another letter for the P. Yeah, we're gonna need those pictures. Yeah, I'm gonna need that photo, <laughs> but you know, come on, man. We got our email. <laughs> okay, we'll 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 dig it up. Yeah, there's oh. somebody got him from behind. I've seen it because his head is turned to one side. And it's very definitely Captain Funk. Oh, that is fantastic. First, first time we met him, and, and I've still got, it's hard for me not to say sir from all my time in law enforcement. First time we met him, I said, hey, thanks for meeting with us, sir. And he said, call me Paul. And I just immediately said, yes, sir. <laughs> I mean, Paul, sorry, sir. And yeah. We, what, uh, we fell into a little pattern at the reunion, especially since I've been going. Um, I get up pretty early. 
and I want coffee and I want it now and don't mess with me. Well, Cap, uh, General Funk, uh, Andy Anderson, I'm sure you guys know him. Uh, a couple of the other door gunners, Ted Currier, um, myself. We got in the habit of having coffee at like 5.36 in the morning. And I couldn't tell you how much, how much I treasured those moments with those guys. Um, is it legal to be up at that time in the morning? No. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, we were up. <laughs> up prowling around, you know. You already drank the coffee in the hotel room. Now you're down there bugging the restaurant. It got in Albuquerque. We had one guy who worked in the kitchen coming in early to make sure we could get coffee. Oh, he great. was well taken care of. We're sitting around one day just BSing about all kinds of stuff. It's early in the morning, very quiet. Real special time of the day. And something came up about personalities and Andy turns and looks at me and he goes, you never were really good at taking orders. And I said to him, I always acknowledge the orders, but if a captain asked me to do something, I'm going to tell him that a major told me to do something else and I'm going to go do what I want. <laughs> a lieutenant gets a captain, a captain gets a major, major gets, that's a colonel, that's as far as I can go. They know general is running around out here. Even I was smart enough to understand that. It was just those moments where, you know, they're, the fences are down with just a bunch of guys sitting around drinking some coffee in the morning and enjoying each other's company. You know, you got a three-star general, a major, uh, and a bunch of bunking door gunners. You know, Ted and um, Gene, Gene Ficker would show up once in a while. Uh, oh, my memory's going, guys. I got a big-time case of CRS. Couldn't tell you what I had for breakfast, but I remember my phone number from when I was nine years old, you know, that, that kind of nonsense. Short-term memory is rapidly going bye-bye. I, I know fun. the same thing. I mean, I've, I've still got my lunch plate over there, so I can tell you that. But <laughs> so, I got uh, in, invited by uh, Jim Kurtz, who's kind of our historian, secretary, coordinator. Everything goes through him. I think it's at Walter Reed. Uh, they're going to restart a program that was very effective in the past and got this discontinued, building plastic models which I've been doing since I was a little boy. Um, I probably built 20 or 30 models for guys in the troop because I do it accurate. If that's the tail number, that's the tail number. Uh, however it was marked, whatever model it was, you know, I'm pretty much of a fanatic for accuracy. And when this program started up, it was a uh, Lieutenant Colonel retired special forces who's spearheading it. He asked me to join and I said, yes, I can't wait. This is the younger generation of vets. I can't wait to get at them because it's supposedly going to be more or less a one-on-one -on -one thing on Zoom like we're doing now. Um, that'll give somebody a little time to get comfortable, get their guard down a little bit, and get into the nitty-gritty and let, let's see what we're dealing with. Because if you're in a program like that, you are a combat vet, and you've been diagnosed with PTSD. So, yeah, we got a few things in common we can talk about. It's not a 20th century, 21st century, 19th century, 18th century thing. It is here. It's uh, alive and present, and how are you going to deal with it? What are you going to do? How do you cope with this? I can tell you what I've done. I can't tell anybody what to do. I can tell you what worked for me. And if that gives somebody a step in the right path, and then they develop their own plans and techniques and strategies, uh, that's one life I can say. Can I save one life? Give me one more chance to save a life. Well, that's, and that's all we've, we've had that talk of we've had that talk while making the movie you know leave the world a bit better place 
then you found it. And I, I, my opinion is that too many people think that has to be a grand gesture. It has to be, you know, oh, I cured cancer. I left the world a better place. Um, if you can change the trajectory of one person's life, you've left the world a better place. <laughs> like, that's... I have a, a, a long established custom of some stranger will walk by me. If there's a female, hey, you look really nice today. I don't know what's going on in her mind. And with some people, that one little couple of words of kindness can change the trajectory of that day. And you never know what's the long-term uh, ramifications there. Uh, I've seen guys walking in circles, really struggling. Uh, Sir, are you okay? Is there anything I can do to help? Just hearing it from a total stranger. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen from there. I really don't. Yeah, but, you know, it's the small things. People. It's the little stuff. Being kind is free. Being polite is free. It doesn't cost you anything. And you never know what you're going to get paid back. I don't even look for payback. Pay it forward. You know, helping somebody broken down on the side of the road. Man, that's neat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and seeing a, a highway patrolman out there changing the spare tire, get your ass back out on patrol. I got this. Here's my driver's license. Take a picture of it. Yeah, I, I mean, I got this. A simple text. How are you doing? A simple text. Veteran no, no. Uh, Dustin, you got anything to add here before no, we? Thanks for it? thanks for joining us, Mike. It's really a, a pleasure to talk to you as always. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, and and hopefully we have another reunion here. Uh, we're looking at 2021 in Albuquerque. Albuquerque. Nice. Back, to, back to Ron and Becky's house. Um, and for the Albuquerque reunion, Albuquerque is only about a seven hour drive for me. So for each one, I've driven up there like a month or so prior and just done, coordinated some stuff with Ron just to help take the workload off a little bit. It's a tremendous amount of work to do it. The ladies, Pam and uh, Pick, who did it the last couple of reunions? It is an It is worse than hurting cats. We are notorious for putting things off until the last minute. And here they're trying to get hotel counts. How many people are going to be at the big banquet? And here's somebody uh, paying at the last minute. You know, yeah. which, um, uh, guilty as charged. I mean, I'll get the hotel reservation. And for the last reunion, I swore up and down I sent the check. And Pam is like the school mom. She doesn't take no lift from any of us. I love yeah. that. That's, that's Ron, Ron, Black's, Ron Black's wife. Ron and I have an incredibly good relationship. Uh, Facebook lets us all fortunately stay in contact, you know, and just seeing somebody like the post that's up there, it's like that name is in my face. Uh, and it's at the point where it's not the Vietnam nonsense that happened that I remember about him. It's what we've done since. And that to me is extremely important. Yeah. Yeah. I thought Pam was going to strangle me at the last reunion. Oh, like, hey. I mean, in a good natured way, but it was wanted to strangle me in several meetings. Yeah. I was like, Hey, we'll show the movie. And you know, the, the schedule's already getting set. And then I'm like, uh, can we have a room to show the movie to the core guys first? Like, I don't want to have Ed Beal watch this in front of everyone for the first time. And right. just, Kind of, and I realized I was like, if it doesn't work, that's and, and cool. I, and I have talked about making that movie and how tough it really was. I mean, you can see it on the movie. You did a very good job portraying that. But to not do it that way, to not do it in that intense way wouldn't be true to the story. The story is the story. Truth is truth. Reality is reality. It had to be done. And yes, it was tough uh, what they were going through. 
watching the movie and reliving that kind of stuff. Well, I'm gonna unfortunately have to sign out here because okay. I can't be out in my in my my nice shirt for the podcast. Although I already have my workout shorts on. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but thank you so much for joining us, Mike. Always great to talk. Welcome, uh, we'll look forward to that picture of uh, General Funk. <laughs> I, I'm going to have to round that one up. I, I know I've seen it. All right. Hopefully we'll take it. it around and see what I can come up with. We'll find it. Um, right. Oh, no, no, that, that's got to be there. We, we got, uh, yeah. that, that's, How do we that know that exists? That has to, that's going in. That, that is him, suits him to a T. But that's how he led us. He had this confident aura about him. Uh, you know, you get your rules of engagements read to you sometimes, and then he goes, do what you got to do to get home. Aye, aye. <laughs> that, that. We hear that loud and clear. And shoot first, ask questions later. Yeah, your rule is survive. <laughs> Pretty uh, much. Do what you got to do to come home tonight. But for the audience, uh, thank you so much for tuning in uh, again for our 17th episode. Um, Make sure you give us a, if you like what you heard, and I hope you did, uh, give us a like and, uh, and a subscribe on wherever you're listening to us on the podcast uh, sphere. They show up in Facebook. We do. Um, we are on Apple, Spotify, Spreaker, um, Podbean, um, but it all, it all collates to the same spot. And we do post it on Facebook, on the Know Your Story podcast on Facebook, uh, as well as the Apache Blues film page on Facebook as well. So yeah, give us Before likes. Before we go, can I read a very short poem? This is Absolutely. I got to get up and go get it. So you'll have some time to edit. You guys ready? Absolutely. I did not write this poem. I don't know who did, but it this says it clearly. For them, it was the news. For us, it was reality. They watched construction. We perform destruction. They watch kids play. We watch them die. They learned of life. We learned of death. Their passion was to succeed. Ours was to survive. They served dinner. We served our country. They forgot. We cannot. That is succinct, succinct to the point and beautiful. Thank you for sharing. I, I'm, not the, I'm not the author, but I think this needs to go in the cast. Exactly. Yeah, my eyes are going in the wrong place again. There we go. Back to it again. I think I've been pretty good about staying in the car. You have been. You've been great. You've been great. I've flicked out a few times, but not even noticeable. You did great. You've been listening to the Know Their Story podcast. If you made it this far, we must be doing something right. Let us know by subscribing to our channel. And think about sitting down with the veterans in your life. Because saying thank you for your service should be the beginning of the conversation, not the end.